can't imagine anything else being as intense um, as my relationship to this character, man. I mean, it was just, it was intense, man. I mean, I was dead in the water as a writer, as a director, as a filmmaker, and, and writing this thing, it gave me back my life. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week we have on the show none other than Barry Jenkins, writer and director of the 2016 Academy Award Best Picture, Moonlight. Adapted from an unpublished play by Terrell Alvin McCraney, Moonlight was a mesmerizing three-part journey through the young adult life of Chiron, a boy grappling with his identity and sexuality, played by three different actors representing different stages of his adolescence. The movie was the first LGBTQ-themed film to win Best Picture, the first with an all-black cast to win Best Picture, and is regularly voted among the greatest films of the century so far. Barry wrote Moonlight's first draft on a solo trip to Europe, after discovering echoes of his own life in Terrell's story. Like the playwright, he had grown up in Liberty City, raised by a mother with drug dependency issues. As he explains in the conversation you're about to hear, Barry didn't know where his life and career were leading before this screenplay spilled out of him on that trip, putting him on a path towards Oscar's glory. Here's Barry, accompanied by an adorable, incredibly well-behaved puppy he adopted before lockdown, on how he went about bringing Terrell's story to screen. We discuss the LGBTQ legacy of the film's success, and also how the original ending to his film may have resulted in the actor Alex R. Hibbert being eaten by sharks. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kamil Demek. Hey, Barry, thanks so much for joining us. How are things? Uh, I mean, all things considered, uh, not too bad, but I mean, it's, uh, it's a crazy time in the world. How has lockdown been for you? Are you someone who's managed to stay productive amidst all the upheaval and distraction? Yeah, it's been interesting. We were in production on this uh, limited series we're doing for Amazon on Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. And so we got through 112 of 115 days um, uh, right before the, the lockdown began. So we've been editing basically 99% of the show. So pretty busy in that regard. Uh, and then staying busy writing. You know, I think... You know, I, I'm just very fortunate to work in the in a creative field mm-hmm. where, you know, not being able to physically leave the house isn't a hindrance to work. So all in all, I've been pretty productive. That's good to hear. Well, I'm really excited to uh, speak a little bit later about Underground Railroad, which sounds really exciting. Um, but first, um, on today's episode of Script Apart, we are delving into the evolution of Moonlight which is a film that means a lot to me and to so many others. We're, we're a few years removed from the film now, from its monumental success and from that dramatic Oscar win and everything else. I've had some filmmakers in the past tell me that it's not really until there's a bit of distance between you and that intense period of a movie's creation that you're finally able to kind of decompress, gain some perspective on it and reflect on it objectively. Is that the case for you? How do you look back on Moonlight today? Um, I think it is the case for me, especially because you know, at the time, so many just like really insane things happened um, with the film from its first screening to uh, the end of the Oscars. Um, And it's hard to maintain your own personal relationship to something that is every day getting further and further or deeper and deeper, you know, into the public. And with that film, into the zeitgeist, um, honestly. So yeah, it is kind of nice to be a bit removed from it. I mean, my relationship to the film now it's kind of driven by on social media, you know, mm. I think uh, there are people who are still discovering the film and there are people who continue to go back to it as a, as a bomb uh, almost. And so, yeah, it's kind of cool to now realize it's not the special thing. It's just this thing um, because, you know, the past has a way of taking all the shiny things, you know, and making them a bit less shiny. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of cool. I actually watched it for the first time uh, a few months ago in years. And I was like, yeah, it kind of holds up. You know, I was, I was really proud uh, of the work we did. And then every now and then uh, people will tweet excerpts uh, from the script. A24 printed uh, this really lovely book of the script and images and a, a foreword by Frank Ocean. And so in that way, a piece of the script came back to me and I hadn't read them 
in years. You know, it's one thing to have not seen the film in years, but I hadn't read the script in years. And I was like, oh man, yeah, I remember doing that. And then sometimes I was like, wait, how did how did we do that? Of those kind of constant outpourings on social media of love and adoration for the film, what are the kind of ones that mean the most to you? And what does it mean to you that so many people still connect with the film and want to get in touch about it? Oh, I mean, it's it's undoubtedly the the kids. It's, it's usually young people who who see themselves in Chiron. And because of Twitter, uh, especially, these are people all over the world who couldn't be farther removed from the the inner city of Miami, who literally find find themselves identifying um, very intensely with this main character. You know, that continues to move me. And then sometimes. Uh, not as often, but I'll sometimes uh, get a message from a much older person who realizes that there was someone in their life who they didn't quite understand. And that through seeing this film, they got a better understanding of that person. And that just means the world, because this thing that was very personal to Terrell and I is now something that can become very personal to absolute strangers. So there's so much distilled into Moonlight. It's a movie about nurture, the way that men's environments kind of steer them into these unhealthy performances of masculinity sometimes. It's also a movie about identity, about blackness, about coming of age. When you adapted the film from Terrell's play, were you kind of very conscious throughout the process of wanting to speak to these grand themes and issues? Or when you write, do you try and push that all to kind of one side? Do you just try and tell an authentic story and trust in yourself that those themes are going to come out organically? Yeah, I try and push it to the side, you know, especially because of my, you know, my opinion on the inherent uh, baked-in qualities of cinema and the baked-in qualities of literature. I think this idea of writing a screenplay, which is a, bl- a blueprint for a film, and having the theme be at the forefront more so than the character or the scene or the scenario, that always, for me, that usually sends me working into a place where I think what ends up uh, happening or what I end up writing isn't as potent in mm. the medium of, of cinema as I want it to. So in writing Moonlight 1, you know, Terrell had already done so much of the work of, uh, of wrestling with these themes, you know, uh, part, of, part of that effort had already been shouldered uh, by someone else. And so for me, it was really just about drilling down, especially with this film, because I knew it was going to be three different chapters, three very distinct periods of the same character's life and that you can't do a cradle to the grave version uh, of anybody's life and have it be as potent. Uh, But in this case where we're trying to take three snapshots, it's got to be incredibly potent. And so Mm. rather than writing towards a theme uh, for me, it was about writing towards the clearest uh, scenario, the clearest um, happening or instance, you know, in this character's quarter life at the moment we're dropping in. And so that kind of freed me, from the pressure of trying to do justice, I'm using air quotes now, <laughs> trying to do justice uh, to those themes. Um, and really, the, the big part of it was that, you know, Terrell Alvin McCraney is a genius, you know, <laughs> the MacArthur genius. We have this thing on this side of the pond called the MacArthur Grant, and uh, Terrell was a recipient, so he's literally a bona fide genius. And so um, I had faith that those themes uh, were baked in to the premise and for me it was just about executing what is the most cinematic way to tell the story what was the task when it came to finding a cinematic telling of that story so what was what was already in Terrell's play was for example you touched on the three-act structure there was that something that was already baked in it was it was somewhat baked in but Terrell is a very dense writer and so even though it was baked in uh the form of it um was very complex um, the way I describe it is we tell the three chapters in turn. We tell Little Story, then Chiron's story, then Black story. Uh, whereas Terrell, you know, you would see Little wake up, Chiron wake up, and then Black wake up. Then you would see Little go to school, Chiron go to school, Black go to the corner. And so he just kept progressing through this day, but he would visit each character, you know, at this moment and the day. And there's a, there's a juxtaposition that happens in that form that's very interesting but to me, that was the thing better either read on the page or experienced in a theater where you have one angle uh, to view the scene from, as opposed to in cinema, I felt like if we could really drill down on the most pivotal moment in this stage of the main character's life, 
that that over the course of the entire film would build mm -hmm. a portrait that I felt was evocative in the way that, uh, that I experienced the first time I read Terrell's play. I was amazed um, researching the film to find out that you and Terrell grew up basically kind of a couple blocks apart from each other in Liberty City and you even went to the same schools at certain times but you never knew each other. Then years and years later you're handed this amazing autobiographical work of his through, through a mutual industry connection, is that correct? Well, um, a mutual industry connection, again, air quotes, industry connection. Um, <laughs> there was this guy named Andrew Havia, who's a, a bit younger than myself and Terrell. Terrell and I are separated by one year. I'm one year older than him. And I'd say Andrew is maybe, I don't know, five or six years younger than Terrell. Uh, but Terrell and Andrew went to the same high school. And Andrew and myself went to the same film school. Mm. And so I didn't know Terrell, but Andrew knew both of us. And he read Terrell's piece first. And Andrew's just, he was just, you know, he's a grown man now, but I always think of him as this young kid. He just was adamant. He was a part of this collective of filmmakers from Miami who took it upon themselves to try to tell Miami stories. And I was a guy who had left Miami and really had no intentions of going back uh, to tell any stories um, and, and certainly not to make a feature film. And so Andrew just got it in his mind that, I needed to read Terrell's play and that I needed to turn Terrell's play into a film. And the thing for me, or the thing that Andrew did that was so smart was he didn't tell me all the connections between myself and Terrell at first. He just said, hey, this guy Terrell McCrane, he's brilliant. He's a MacArthur genius. You should read his play. I think you'll find it really interesting. And when I read it, I was kind of confronted because when I became a filmmaker, I never wanted to make anything that was autobiographical or semi-autobiographical. Uh, and reading Terrell's piece, the, the connections were very clear to me, but it still felt removed enough that I thought, oh, it's his story, not mine. Um, but to go back to your earlier question, when you're sitting down with the script and you're working on these scenes, these very uh, concise, these very concrete scenarios, anytime there's a connection between you and the character, you start to draw from your own experience. And so right away I realized, oh my God, I'm, I'm writing the script and it's kind of like a combined biography of myself in Terrell's life. And one of the yeah. really, one of the loveliest things that happened with Moonlight was Terrell and I went down to Miami uh, with this writer from the New York Times, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who now also is a MacArthur genius. Uh, <laughs> she recently published the 1619 Project for That's the New York right, Times. Yeah. And she took us down there and the neighborhood that we grew up in, part of it's still there, part of it's not. And so the tenement that I grew up in has been completely raised and the tenement Terrell grew up in has been raised as well. And so there was a moment where I stood in front of my apartment and I could point right across the square and about 200 yards away, Terrell was standing where his apartment had been. And oh, wow. we were like, that's how physically close we had been as children. This was quite a few years after your previous film, Medicine for Melancholy, which came out in 08. Um, I know that you wrote quite a few screenplays in that in-between period, some of which you've described as being slightly more commercial, but none of them panned out, none of them quite clicked for you. Can you tell me what some of those abandoned screenplays were like and whether before Moonlight came into your periphery, you were experiencing any self-doubt or fear that you might not ever find the right project you wanted to work on? Oh, I've been experiencing extreme self-doubt. I still experience extreme uh, self-doubt, <laughs> uh, even with shiny statues in the house. Um, yeah, it was it was a really uh, intense time. I had to learn a few really difficult lessons. And, you know, there was one script that I wrote before writing Moonlight that I still want to make. And it was the first step at getting away from uh, the path I'd gone down trying to make more commercial things to break into uh, the industry. And what was the, the connection between that script and Moonlight was I wrote that script for no money. Um, and I wrote it understanding that it would be very difficult to make, not because of finances, but because of subject matter. And yet I wrote it understanding that that did not matter and that I was writing it for the joy of process to honestly um, stretch myself as a writer. Mm. You know, that character, just like Chiron, could not be further removed on the surface from who I am um, as a person from my biography. Um, and yet I found so much of myself in that character, that project got taken away from me. 
it just got taken away. Um, and when that happened, rather than shrinking or folding it to myself, I thought, oh, okay, that actually felt good though, working on that, you know, where else can I go? And that was when I got together with Adela Romanski and we decided, well, you should go somewhere and write some films. And we went off and wrote both the damn films and they both won Academy Awards, uh, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's an understatement. Um, but at what point when you, can you tell me about like, it must've been quite a visceral reaction that you had the first time that you came across Terrell's work and realized the level of overspill there was between his story and yours. Can you t- tell me a little bit about your memories of that first time? It, it was and it wasn't. You know, I remember I read it the first time. I've never said this publicly. I'll be honest. I read it the first time and I didn't reply to Andrew. I read it and I thought, whoa, that's wild. And I just <laughs> pushed it aside. And, um, and Andrew's tenacious and he just kept following up and following up and following up. And then finally, um, he said, you should read it again. And so I read it again. And it's kind of lovely. It's, it's kind of cool to have this conversation now because you think back and you see, I don't know, it's, it's easier to draw the map backwards than it is to draw the map forwards. Yeah. And, and Adela Romanski was also hounding me at this time. It was pre-Zoom, so we were doing Google Hangouts. I was in Oakland, she was in LA, and we would just once a month have these Google Hangouts. And she was saying, so what have you written? What are you working on? And I was just collating ideas. And I said, oh, you know, this guy, Andrew Havia, did send me this play by Terrell McCrane. She said, oh, what's it about? I said, oh, it's about this, it's about that. She goes, oh, that actually sounds really interesting. And so I read it again. And when I mm. read it again the second time, that was when it was almost like you watch some movie from the 90s about spies and the main character sitting there and then all the bulbs go off and there's all these, <laughs> these dissolves and whatnot. It was kind of a, a moment like that. And I actually got on a plane and flew to Miami and I, I like to say I asked Terrell for his hand in marriage, uh, by which I mean, uh, at that point, I knew I was going to take a trip to Europe. And uh, Andrew and I met with Terrell and I said, you know, would you mind if I took this play and adapted it? And he said, you have my blessing. And I said, how involved do you want to be? And he said, only as involved as you need me to be. Um, and I realize now looking back, it's because so much of it was extremely personal uh, for Terrell that the work he had done, he felt like was completed. And to have done that work again would have been to reopen uh, these wounds. And so, yeah, yeah, I just went off to Brussels, Belgium and uh, and wrote the script. You mentioned an awareness that you had that um, the content of Moonlight might make it a bit of an uphill battle to get made. Um, You did, of course, end up making the film with Plan B Productions, which is Brad Pitt's company. Um, am I right in thinking there was a bit of a twist of fate that led to that happening involving Telluride Film Festival and an extremely last minute Q&A with Steve McQueen? It, it was cool. So the, the way it went was I flew to Brussels and I wrote uh, uh, Moonlight, the first draft in Brussels over the course of two weeks. And then I took a train to Berlin and I wrote the first draft of Beale Street. And then I flew back to the States. This was in the summer of, I guess it was 2013. And, uh, and I've worked at Telluride since 2002. I used to, I went there as a student and washed toilets and made popcorn. And, and then after I made medicine, they saw me do a Q&A for one of my own films and said, oh, you're really good at this. You want to do Q&As for other people's films? I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And, uh, and holy shit, this huge ass movie, 12 Years a Slave by your countryman, Steve McQueen, is world premiering. And literally the world premiere, and I was told about 30 minutes before the screening that I would introduce the film and also run the post-screening Q&A. And so I did that, and uh, it went really well. Uh, The film played through the roof and ultimately ended up winning Best Picture. And yeah, when I made my first film, Medicine, I had a few meetings with Plan B, uh, in particular with Jeremy Kleiner. And... I came off the stage and he looked at me and he goes, Barry Jenkins? I was like, yeah. He goes, man, what have you been up to? Because medicine had been, that's, that was five, six years yeah, prior. Yeah, right. Because I think he had seen it in 2007 uh, when it was at festivals, not during its release in 2008. And uh, I said, yeah, actually, I just came back from Europe. I, I adapted this James Baldwin book and this play by Terrell Alvin McCraney. Uh, he goes, oh, cool, man. When it's in shape, you should send it to us. And 
the rest is, as they say, in movie history. So let's delve into the actual script. Um, we begin on a bright Miami day, or what we can see of it at least, our gaze fixed looking out through the front windshield of a vintage car. Beyond the car is Juan, 30s Afro-Latino. He retrieves a handwritten CDR and pushes it into the custom console. A chopped and screwed version of Curtis Mayfield's Little Child Running Wild plays on the sound system. Um, I suppose I should ask here, um, so when you're writing screenplays, is the directorial side of your brain kind of whirring at the same time um, as, as you compose scenes on the page, are you already thinking, oh, okay, here's how I'm going to shoot this? Or do you try and decompartmentalize the two processes? I don't think of here's how I'm going to shoot this, but I try to write in a way, and this is when it gets tricky when I'm writing things for other people, but I try to write the script as though, uh, in the way that the audience is going to see uh, the, the film. What's good about that is it automatically clicks me in that I need to write from a point of view, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and, and as far as the screenplay goes, not even from an emotional point of view, but from literally a sound and image point of view. And that doesn't necessarily yield, yield itself as, you know, editing or camera positions, but it does mean that I am, I don't know, I am sort of like this, uh, this phantom that's standing on that block and I'm looking at things this way and that way. Uh, the really cool thing is my cinematographer, James Laxon, you know, we've been working together since film school. I've been writing the same way since film school. So if I hand him the script, then he can see it as well. Mm. And as we build this village of collaborators with the way that I approach uh, the scene work, the writing of the scenes, they can see it as well. Because when you get on the set, it's all about communication. And the more I can communicate on the page, the less communication I have to do on the day on set. Right, so yeah. it's tough, man. I, I try <laughs> I try to I try to mitigate how much of that I'm doing on the page, but I can't deny that I want the reading of the script to be as evocative as the watching of the film. So my second question about this opening sequence is about music. So page one, there we have it, our first mention of music, that Curtis Mayfield, chopped and screwed version. Um, music ha- music has such a vital role in the identity and, and the character of each act. I'm wondering, when you were writing Moonlight, did you listen to the music corresponding to each moment in the story? Are you a writer that uses music to kind of submerge yourself in the mood of a scene? I uh, submerge myself, sure. And mm. usually, usually I'm, uh, I'm listening to the same song over and over and over again as I'm writing the script. And so I can, I can think back to uh, exactly what I was writing or what I was listening to at the time that I was writing uh, these, uh, these screenplays. Um, but it's not tailored to uh, the script so much. And so Little Child Running Wild is not in Moonlight, obviously. Yeah. Um, I think we came up, we found a much more appropriate song. Although in the first cut, because again, the script is the thing, it's the one thing everyone can look towards as a unifying piece. So the editor got that. And, you know, when he made the first assembly of that chapter, Little Child Running Wild was playing. We actually shot that scene, not in the film. There's this, there's this whole montage of Juan driving around Miami that nobody will ever see, um, but, we, but we shot it. But no, usually the, the writing process and what's being written uh, to me are, are very separate. And so I listened to uh, this Frank Ocean album uh, called Channel Orange, but chopped and screwed to, to be called Channel Purple. Purple, yeah. Yeah, I listened to that while writing the script and it's nowhere. Uh, it's nowhere, it's not, I don't think it's referenced in the script and it's certainly not in the film, mm. but it was the mood I needed to be in to write. You mentioned one there. What does that character represent to you? Um, you? You begin this story with him and you loop back around to a character like him at the beginning of Act 3 when we meet grown-up Chiron or Black, as he's then known. There's some kind of circularity there that seems to be saying something about like the male archetype that young Black men are conditioned into becoming by their surroundings. Is that fair to say? What does, what does Juan represent in Chiron's life? Mm-hmm. Uh, t- totally, absolutely, and I think, uh, and that's more, that's more a thing of Terrell than it is of of, of Barry. You know, uh, I love that when we went off to make the film, Mahershala really made it his own, and Trevante really made the character of Black his own. But 
the character of Juan is based on a real person in Terrell's life. And for me, it was based on uh, the, the coaches I had in athletics uh, growing up in the neighborhood you see depicted in the film. Those men were the father figures that I looked up to um, growing up the way Little did. And for Terrell, there was an actual uh, Juan. Uh, the character's name was Blue. But I thought having a blue and a little and a black might be too much. So in Terrell's play, <laughs> Juan's name is Blue, um, which interesting because Juan in the movie ends up uh, calling uh, Chiron Blue. Yeah. Um, or actually, he tells the story of the woman in Cuba uh, calling That's him right. Blue. So, so, so we do hold on to it a bit. But, but yeah, that character's taken directly from Terrell. And I think the the working out of the third chapter, which isn't as prominent in Terrell's play as it is in the film, was about what could have happened to Little, to Sharon, to Terrell McCraney, you know, had he not had this figure in his life of Juan. Juan's fate kind of goes unmentioned, unexplained. So he's he's there in Act One, this adoptive father figure. Then we meet teenage Little, or Sharon as he's then known in Act Two. There's this tender scene between him and Janelle Monet's character where they're making a bed together, but Juan is noticeable by his absence. Um, the audience is left to infer that he passed away, or, or at least that was my reading of it. Was there any stage in the development of Moonlight when you kind of contemplated dealing more explicitly with what happened to Juan? Never, never. Even from the very first draft, part of the the process of being emboldened enough to make uh, to write the script. And when I decided I was going to make it, I had a, a, a friend, someone I trust, who said to me, are you sure you want to make this as your second film? You know, this very artsy movie about a black gay kid from projects with a drug-addicted mom who becomes a drug dealer himself. Are you sure that's what you want to do? Um, and I was sure it was what I wanted to do. And so it gave me the confidence to do things exactly as I wanted to do them. Uh, but 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 it was cool because with that confidence, I understood that there's a shorthand in this film for the audience that grew up where these characters grew up. And so if you're from a neighborhood like the one depicted in this film, you know exactly what happened to Juan. Mm. You know exactly what happened to Mahershala Ali. You know exactly why he's not there in the second chapter. Everyone else maybe has to catch up. And I thought, you know what? That's fine because sometimes... You know, I grew up watching, I don't know, Family Ties or Leave it to Beaver or The Brady Bunch, you know, or Full House. And I had to catch up because mm. I wasn't from that world. And so, yeah, it was intentional. And there was never even a hint uh, of explaining more explicitly what happens to that character. We soon meet the central character whose story we're, we're going to follow for the entire film. Um, so you've got it here on the script as... Three young boys with sticks chase Little, a runt, who is running, terrified. The three boys laugh as they give chase, but this is not a game, more like a hunt. He runs into this like dilapidated housing estate in a panic. The rest of the film from there is is his story told through his eyes. Um, Because this character is drawn partly from your own life, did he just spill out onto the page for you or were there still challenges in bringing him to life? I, I wrote the first draft of the script in uh, in about ten days, so yeah, it just it just spilled out. Mm. It just spilled out. Now, mind you, a lot of that work had been done uh, by Terrell. You know, the opening of the film is pretty faithful to uh, the opening of the script. I should say it's pretty faithful to the opening of Terrell's play. Um, but even more so, you know, Terrell was that kid, and kind of I was that kid, and so even though I didn't set out to make a film that was autobiographical, there was just so much I could pull from. And so, yeah, it just, it spilled right out. I, I have never had as fluid a writing experience on anything as with the script, which is terrible to say, man, because I would love to be able to look forward to, you know, extremely fluid writing experiences, but <laughs> I know that that one that every writer gets, it, it might be behind me. You know? mm. Do you just put that down to, how personal and intimate the story was and your familiarity with that character because it because it's you in a way i think so and i think also too i was hungry man i was mm. so hungry i mean i was in the middle of nowhere brussels belgium and uh, it was in july I, I didn't know a single person you know i had a flat 
and I had a block. I would walk to this one cafe, this one restaurant, this one bar, and there was a menswear store on the street, and I befriended this one clerk at the menswear store. That was my life for those 10 days. And so, in a way, my only friends were these characters. You know, my life was the script. I was fully, fully within it. And yeah, I, I wouldn't say it just spilled out. It was work. I mean, mm-hmm. it was definitely work. But this was the kind of writing experience where I didn't know exactly where each of the chapters would end. But every time I would get to the end of a chapter, I would just be there with my little whiskey at this, this bar <laughs> called Lord Byron. And I realize, oh, shit, that one's done. Like, that was done. And then I just move on to the next. And then I looked up, and I wasn't planning to write it as quickly as I did, but I looked up and I was like, oh, damn, I'm done. And I ordered another drink, and then I went back to the flat. And I thought, mm, I think I should go somewhere else. And so I just went to Berlin. I wish my trips to Brussels and Berlin were as productive as yours, Barry. Bro, hey, as, uh, I've tried it again, and it didn't work as well. So, yeah, I, I, wish, I wish also. <laughs> so one becomes this adoptive father figure in Little's life, leading to this extraordinarily moving dinner scene in which Little asks him, what's a faggot? Can you tell me about the evolution of that scene and the kind of tenderness that you packed it with? Yeah, that was a tough one because um, I don't believe that scene is in the play. And and I think that was for me a working out of, you know, what what, what needs to be the, what does Juan need to give to, to Little that's going to carry him on for the next 60 minutes, for the next two chapters of his life as told through the story. And it felt like this question, this, this idea between them, the shame that Little is only beginning to realize and actualize because the world around him is forcing him to, is projecting it onto him, that Juan needed to be this vessel that helps him unpack it. And, you know, I, I try not to read uh, reviews of my, my work. And, you know, when you release a film, especially the way this film was released, you know, the, the studio, the publicist, they, they aggregate all the reviews and they, they send you clips. And I told them, don't send me anything. And, <laughs> but then Hilton Owls uh, reviewed the film for The New Yorker. New Yorker, yeah. And Paula Woods, my publicist, she said, you have to read this one. And I love, in writing about the scene, Hilton says, um, Little Ask Juan, what's a faggot? And Juan unpacks the word, but he doesn't unpack the boy with it. And I remember feeling like that was what my job was. And because there was a line that I felt like that I wasn't sure I could cross, which is a lot of this is autobiographical for me. And yet, you know, little sexual identity is not mine. You know, Terrell's sexual identity is not mine. And so who am I as the author of this piece to wrestle with this question, this, this facet of his identity? Uh, but I also felt like if we're all human beings and we all are dealing and wrestling with the same, uh, the same issues, the same preoccupations, uh, regardless of our, of our sexual identities, then I should be able to, as Hilton said, help this character unpack this. And so I wrote it, man. And I wrote all the stories in sequence. So I, I want to say it was the last thing that I wrote in that chapter very early in, in the days in, in Brussels. In Brussels. And, and I remember getting to the end of it and just being like, oh, shit. I don't know how we're going to film this, but I know that we have to film it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, then I moved on because I could just skate into the next chapter, teenage years, which, which is much more comfortable. <laughs> But before we get there, we have Act One kind of culminate in this almost baptismal kind of scene as one takes little swimming in the ocean. And Moonlight is actually kind of punctuated by these moments involving water and the beach. So later we'll see Sharon have this transformative sexual experience by the beach. The film ends by a shoreline as well. Can you tell me about this, that motif of water and the shore and how it kind of fits into the story that you were telling? That, that's the beauty of Terrell Alvin McCraney. You know, even the naming of the character Chiron, you know, it's just a masterful stroke uh, by, by Terrell. And this, the theme of water is present 
all throughout the play as well, um, which the play culminates um, early in the third chapter of the film. Uh, uh, Chiron, or Black, I should say, and Kevin don't reunite in the play. Again, that was where I felt like I have to step forward and maybe, you know, very uh, ter- terrifiedly, I don't know if that's a word, uh, <laughs> but but take Terrell's uh, beautiful piece and extend it a bit. But the water was there. It was baked in. And what I love about that is, you know, I think there there are certain stories that can exist in many different mediums. And this was a really beautiful play, you know, as evidenced by the fact that Andrew hounded me. And once I read it, I realized, oh, I think this has to be my second film. Um, and yet there's something about taking this thing from one medium to the next and the play and the script are both text, but I know it's going to end up in sound and images and just that the notion of water. And as you said, this baptism, it just felt like, okay, there's going to be the spiritual transference between Juan and, uh, and little. And I'll say the one thing I'll give myself credit for is there were two scenes. One, there was a swimming lesson and one also taught little how to ride a bike. And I thought, oh, this bike shit. No, we're not doing that. We're doing this one scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, we then slip into act two. Uh, Little is now Chiron. We're, we're thrust into this classroom scene where we see that the brutality almost of school is this prototype battleground for performances of masculinity. Chiron's being terrorized by this bully, but he has this friend. The entire act is just heartbreaking. The the setup of this friendship, the blossoming of that friendship into a sexual moment between the two. Then this painful act of betrayal that wounds both parties so deeply. Can you tell me about the construction of this act? I mean, was all of this in Terrell's play? No, I think of the three acts, the one that's most faithful to the play is act two. You know, I think Terrell lived those things. That scene between Naomi Harris and Ashton Sanders in the courtyard, you know, where she says, uh, give me the money, that actually happened to Terrell. You know, that I, I added a few flourishes and, of course, you know, visually we filmed it, but that was Terrell. I think of the three chapters, the one that's taken most directly from Terrell's life is chapter two and that lovely scene on the beach. You know, what's that line? Uh, sometimes I cry so much, I think I'm going to turn and it drops. That's mm-hmm. Terrell Alvin McCraney. I mean, that's why I'm so glad we both got statues because he earned the hell out of that statue. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Chap- chapter two is very faithful to Terrell. You know, what What I love is that as a director, and this this is the first of three adaptations for me, Jesus Christ. Um, but when you're working in adaptations is sometimes the, the trick is, what do I not fuck up? You know? And in chapter two, there were a lot of things where, where I was like, you know, don't fuck that up. Um, and then, you know, uh, I was going to say Terrell, Freudian slip, Chiron coming home and just washing his face in that water. Yeah. That was one of those things that James and I were like, oh, this is going to be really intense. Um, and adding the flickering light and all those things. Um, and then the whole walk to the school. It's interesting. I know it's a screenplay uh, podcast, but with this script in particular, I knew no one else, absolutely no one else was going to direct this. And so for me with chapter two, more than chapter one, for sure, chapter three is a whole different beast. My job was, okay, how do I visually translate what Terrell is doing? The big thing for me was point of view. You know, chapter one, I think is much more observant of Little. Uh, Chapter two, you're kind of with Chiron. You know, Mm -hmm. it's almost like the camera's glued to him in a certain way. It's, um, it's almost like watching a third person shooter kind of video game where the camera's just a little bit behind yeah. you, you know, like Grand Theft Auto or something like that. <laughs> yeah. As he walks through the school to get his revenge and that sort exactly. of thing. Exactly. Chapter yeah. two felt like, you know, we just want the audience because, because here's the thing. Chapter one is about a child and it's really easy to identify or to have empathy, you know, and to a certain degree sympathy for a child. Chapter two, you know, you, we wanted the audience to understand how this, how and why this character becomes who he becomes in chapter three. And so to do that, we felt like there had to be an extreme proximity to him in the second chapter of the film. And so for me, it was about making the story, the story beats as clean as possible and making the visual storytelling as immersive as possible, uh, as possible as well. And it's why there isn't really a direct to camera moment that's as visually intense in chapter one 
you know, as there is in chapter two, you know, in the scene where Naomi Harris is demanding that Sharon give her the money, you know, in that case, we completely place the audience in between the two characters. And even from the, the script moment, you know, we kind of knew that was going to happen. I think there's a line in the script where it says, um, Paula flashes a smile, a smile has been forgiven many times over and will be many times more. So, something like that. I haven't read it mm. in a while. But yeah, it was like, okay, we're going to put you in now. We're going to put you in. <laughs> were those scenes involving Naomi Harris's character, the mother, were they the hardest to write because of their proximity to your own life, Barry? They weren't the hardest to write for me uh, because, again, so much of Chapter 2 is taken directly from Terrell's life. They were the hardest to film. Mm-hmm. They were the hardest to film. Every scene with Naomi in this film was the hardest to film. They were the hardest to film. Um, the scene in the third chapter with the uh, the rehab scene between uh, Paula and Black, that's also, there's a version of that scene that's in the play. And we sort of took it and just put a, put a bit more air into it. But yeah, every scene with Naomi Harris was the hardest scene to film. Uh, and also we had to do them all in three days. And so there was no place to hide, you know? We did all of her work mm. on three consecutive days. And so it was the only time in the whole process where the writing or filming where you didn't have the luxury of, I'm just with Little now. I'm just with Chiron <laughs> yeah. now. I'm just with Black. Uh, when Naomi showed up, it was Little, Black, Chiron, Little, Chiron, Black. You know, we were just jumping back and forth. And, you know, there's something uh, psychotic about that because you're, you're seeing your mother. And when she's in the Little chapter, She's your mother. This is who you remember. And then when you're in the Chiron chapter, it's like, this is also your mother. And you mm-hmm. also remember. Um, and then when you get to that third chapter, this is your mother, you know, and you wish you had that moment. So, yeah, it was intense. Can you tell me a bit about this scene that we then get to in which Chiron and Kevin share that sexual embrace on the beach? So there's so much beauty in there. There's so much tenderness in this scene. How many attempts did it take to, to nail what it was you wanted to do with this scene when you were writing Moonlight? Uh, Script-wise, again, quite a bit of that is, uh, is from Terrell's play. I would say of all the scenes in the script and the play, that one he used the closest mm-hmm. to the source material, to the text. Um, part of that for me was I don't have that experience. I just didn't. I didn't live that moment. And so it felt like to me, the wisest thing to do was to let Terrell guide me through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then here and there, you know, and again, as I'm talking to you, I'm talking mostly about the, the first draft of the script. I'm talking about sitting down and writing it for the first time because that scene was one that evolved by degrees over the course of rewrites and every iteration of it. You know, I did allow myself to uh, assert my, um, my uh, authorial vo- uh, voice um, over the text. But of all the scenes in the script, that one is the most faithful to the play. Filming it, that's a whole different conversation. That's a whole, because getting that right, again, you mentioned this word tenderness, getting that right on the day, getting a scene that on the surface should be incredibly awkward uh, and yet rendering it so that, it, that, it, that for the audience, the feeling of it is incredibly tender that's a very delicate uh, balancing act. Because mm, I guess it's not just tenderness. There's also fear and the sense of like a line being crossed that there's no kind of way of uncrossing, I guess. Exactly. And, and, and you were talking about themes uh, at the very beginning of our talk. And I will say if there's a place in the script, in the film, in the play, where those themes are just written in 3000 point font, you know, it's the sequence, you know, you know, all this fear, this awkwardness, this tenderness, hesitation, because this is not what, what men or what boys do. Air quotes now, it's a podcast, you know, (laughs) you know, this is not what men, what boys do. This is not how they touch one another. It's not how they look at one another. And so why do they feel this extreme desire to look at one another, to touch one another, you know, Mm -hmm. and how can we get to a place where that look, that touch is not only accepted, but, but wanted, relished, you know, where it's, as you say, tender. Doing that in one night, in one night, 
you know, with eight hours of darkness where you got to set up lights, where now, instead of it just being two boys who finally have just the space, this piece of sand that's all their own, there's 40 crew standing around <laughs> who are also, you know, witnessing, you know, the performance of this awkwardness, this tenderness. I mean, it was, um, other than the scene between uh, Juan and Little at the, at the dinner table, what's a faggot? This was the most, the most tricky scene for me uh, to film. Uh, writing it though, you know, I just, I, I, I have so much love and respect for what Terrell does, that writing it was a dream. It was a dream. I'll say translating it was a dream. Mm. So then there's that moment of betrayal where, yeah, sort of Kevin is kind of forced to beat up Sharon and it sort of sends Chiron on sort of a bit of a dark path and the act ends with this like moment of violence and we cut, we go into act three where Chiron is now black. I've heard you describe this version of the character as masculinity run amok. I was wondering what you could, if you can tell me what you meant by that and how you went about writing in this exaggerated performance of manhood into the script through things like his car and his demeanor. Yeah, I mean, uh, so again, all praise to Terrell Alvin McCraney. You know, the the third story of the film and of the script is the one that that is that that is that is the least represented in the the play. Um, uh, however, the character himself is constructed um, in the play. And here's the thing: um, it wasn't necessary to have that character fully fleshed out in the play because. I know men, I know boys where Terrell and I grew up who go through this metamorphosis, air quotes now, uh, because a metamorphosis is something that is natural, that is driven, you know, uh, caterpillars turn into butterflies. In this case, a boy like Chiron is bullied and beaten and pressured uh, so much to the point that instead of allowing himself to become whatever kind of butterfly he's meant to be, he decides to shape himself um, or reshape himself into, as I said in some press interview many years ago, yeah, masculinity run amok. And, and to me, the whole point of constructing the character that way, um, and again, this is when you talk about the difference between uh, a, a printed medium and a visual medium, is I wanted the audience to look at this character and see, oh, wow, that's the guy I'm going to cross the street. You know, if I see him walking down the sidewalk, that's the guy. If, if he pulls up next to me at the stoplight, I'm going to roll my windows up, you know, and yet to still look. And if you look long enough, you see Alex Hibbert. You see that same little boy from the first chapter of Moonlight who you would never even think to cross the street from. And, and, and to me, that was what the what the job was. That was what to me, you talk about themes. That was the whole point, you know, of making this film. And why was it important to you to make the changes that you did by having him reunite with Kevin and having Kevin ask him that question, who is you, Sharon? It was just out of love for the character, man. You know, what, what, was, what I really enjoy about the process of, of, of making films, of telling stories, is when I'm reminded of what it's like just to be somebody in the audience or sitting down with a book, going through and experiencing for the first time you know, that, that, that just mesmerizing feeling, uh, that exhilarating feeling of like, oh my God, I'm just like so, so moved by, by what's happening in front of me. And because this originated with Terrell, I just fell so in love with the idea of little becoming Sharon, becoming black. And I, I then, I just felt like these guys, I remember saying it out loud to Havia, to Andrew Havia, and to Terrell before I went off to, to write the annotation. I just want you to know, I need these two characters to sit down. I just need them to sit down, and I need Kevin to look at Chiron and see what he's done. I just need it. And in being seen, I need to know how that is going to open black, if it's going to open black. And I'll tell you, you know, sitting in, you know, being in Brussels, I'm going back to the, the first draft of the script. There was a roadmap for the first two thirds of the, the, the film, you know, little, you know, that was there. And your Sharon, that was there. The outline, the structure was there. There were all these different scenes I could pull from, add to, accentuate. 
third chapter, I wasn't there. You know, it was just the phone call. It was just the phone call. You know, Black picks up the phone, he calls, Kevin answers. And I was like, holy shit. I, I'm so in love with these characters. Once he hears that voice, he's going to go to it. And when he goes to it, it's going to be fucking electric. It just is. And that's me now, not as a writer. That's not ego. That's me as an audience member, because these are Terrell's characters. Yeah. And I go, fuck, what is that electric feeling? Well, here we go. And I just sat down and with a lot of whiskey, and I just got <laughs> at it. And, and, and I remember the, the, the question of who is you, Chiron, but also, uh, but also just that moment, you know, talk about now visual language, that first moment when they see each other. I haven't read the script in a while, so I'm not sure if that's in there. The moment I do remember, and this is the, the script excerpt that's kicked to me the most, and I apologize to all the screenplay professors in, in <laughs> colleges and universities all over the world. But man, I, the, the only time that I look at my own writing and I feel a sense of accomplishment is if I, there's a scene that's filmed and the scene, the filmed version is successful and evocative and I can go back to the script retroactively. So after the scene is done, I can go back to the script and see on the page the same thing. That's when I feel like, damn, you know, I did good work. And this excerpt always comes back to me every now and then on Twitter where it's Black is driving Kevin home and, uh, and Kevin says, where are you going to stay tonight? And, and they, they look at each other. I forget what the actual writing is, but it ends up with saying the earth just moved. They both felt it. And I was like, and I don't remember how that came into my head, or, or, but, but, but I do know it was about just that electric feeling, you know? And we filmed the scene, and, and I think what's really cool about the way this screenplay is written, and some of the other things I've written, I try to do the same thing, is the actors read that, and they know. Mm -hmm. they, 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 can, they have an understanding of, of what the tone, of what the feeling is. And so, you know, I look at Andre, and I look at Travante in that scene, and whenever that clip comes back to me, and I go, oh, shit, yeah, the earth did just move, you know? And, and I, I say I want to apologize to screenplay professors because that's, that's an example where, yeah, it's something that, that can't be filmed or heard, which is what they tell you, and yet it can certainly be felt. It can absolutely be felt. And when I watch that scene, I know that those guys feel it and the audience feels it. So fuck it. I'm going to overwrite that scene. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I went off on a tangent, <laughs> man, but, but, but are in the past now and, and writing it is even farther um, in the past, but you know, and, and man, you know, it's the quarantine. I don't know where, who's going to listen to this, but this is a stressful last time right now, man. It really is. You know, yeah. people who have Oscars, they get stressed too. So this is a <laughs> stressful, intense ass time. And, and it's really easy to disassociate or become so far removed from the things you've accomplished. But I think more than that, from the work you've done is a better way of saying it. And so thank you, man, because I haven't thought about that in, in quite a bit. But, but, uh, but the, the, the creation of, of, of that scene in particular, but the script as a whole was so pure, man. And, uh, and yeah, it's lovely to, to end up at a place where I can look back at the stuff and go, yeah, this shit worked, man. It absolutely worked. But apologies to all the screenplay professors and all the college classes all, all over the world because I know the demographic for that book that A24 printed, and it's definitely kids in screenwriting classes who want to tell their professors, see, no, I can write shit that can't be seen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh. So Barry, that ending, like, what does it mean to you? I mean, there's there's closure in the ending, but there's ambiguity also. I was wondering if you could describe what that ending offers in bringing the character's arc to a point of completion in one sense without fully kind of wrapping th things up in a neat little bow. Yeah, to, to, to me, especially looking at the performance that Trevante gives in the, the last chapter of the film, look, in both the script um, and the film, I knew I wanted to end uh, with little. You know, I wanted to remind uh, the audience that no matter what happens to that character, at his heart, he still is the same little boy. And no matter what you saw in the second or the third chapter, he's still that little boy. And the audience's understanding for him, their relation to him is very clear in the first chapter of the film, very clear. Um, 
And I don't know, it just felt like, and Alex Herbert gave such a wonderful performance that it felt just that I wanted, there's a, there's a sense of interrogation with this film. I'll be honest, you know, this idea of actors or characters looking directly at the audience. It was something James and I had experimented with on earlier short films, but never to the degree that we do in this film. And now I'm speaking more of the, the production of the film because it's not something that is keyed in the, in the screenplay. I mean, literally Naomi Harris and Alex Hibbert looking at each other down the hall, that's kind of reference in the script, but the way we filmed it just happened on the day. And so I knew that this idea of being a passive observer or creating a film that is a very voyeuristic experience, that was something I was interested in. And so to me, it was almost a confrontation uh, with the audience that they had to, at the very end of seeing all this, look this little boy in the eye because how many boys and how many men, you know, do we look in the eyes all the time that we don't allow ourselves to actually see? And so to me, after going through this journey of walking a mile in this character's shoes, it was very important that the audience have to look him in the eye, you know, as the closing image of the film. Now I'll tell you, both in the script and in production, Little actually turns away from the camera and he walks out into the ocean. In the script, he actually swims out into the ocean. But I learned very quickly that when you're filming a scene at Magic Hour in Miami, that's when sharks come to feed. And they actually <laughs> like, they like very small beings. And so the lifeguards would not allow us to have Alex Herbert walk very far into the water. Um, but if you go back to the footage, he actually looks, he turns back, he looks at the audience, then he turns and he walks into the water and the camera fades to black. But as we were in post-production, this is what I love about making films. Sometimes the director knows better than the writer. Sometimes uh, a friend of the director knows better than the director because uh, a good friend of mine, Mark Sariak, who now works in my company, Pastel, he went to film school with, he gave one note and he watched the film and his one note was, I don't think he should look away. I was like, huh? He goes, yeah, I think you just cut the black and I have him look away. And so I was like, man, you crazy. But, you know, hey, I'm never afraid to be wrong. Um, and so any note somebody gives me, I always try. And so we did it one time and I turned to him and I said, fuck, <laughs> because I don't want to be wrong. But uh, but he was definitely right. And so, yeah, that, that's how the last image became the last image. And when you tell a story about a character as intimately as you did in Moonlight, how long does that character stay with you afterwards? Do you ever find yourself kind of imagining what happened to that character after the credits rolled, where the rest of his life may have led? Man, this, the, the making of this film, I'm not going to answer, answer your question as intellectually beautifully as you asked it. I'm just going to say <laughs> this, it sucks, man, because, you know, I don't know how many more things I'm going to go on to make, but the more I make, the farther away I'll get from this film but I can't imagine anything else being as intense um, as my relationship to this character, man. I mean, it was just, it was intense, man. I mean, I was dead in the water as a writer, as a director, as a filmmaker and, and writing this thing. You know, it's interesting because now fucking social media, you know, sometimes this film was referred to as Oscar bait. And then like, do you have any idea how this film was made? <laughs> the idea of Oscars or, or, or catching anything, you know, I'm unpacking the word bait. It's just like, it just doesn't exist with this film. Um, but everything was so intimate, as you say, and so intense that this character will be with me forever. You know, Lulu and I are here in LA and on one of our very few drives, we're driving down the street and there's a billboard for this, the show on Showtime made by Lena Waithe called The Shy. Yeah. And Alex Hibbert, the little and Moonlight, he's one of the stars of the shy. He's the center of this billboard. And this is a kid who had never acted in a film before. And Adela and I walk into a youth center and he came over, he auditioned. And now he's on a billboard in, in LA. It's like, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it goes beyond awards. It goes, it goes beyond craft. That's just like, that's life, man. Mm -hmm. And and I think this film, uh, for me, it just gave it gave me back my life, and this character of Sharon that 
Terrell trusted me with gave me back um, my life. And that's what's so meaningful about these interactions I have either on social media or festivals with other people is it also gave them a piece of their selves when they're able to walk into a theater or sit at home and identify with this character. To have that happen from somebody just sitting down at a laptop typing in words, because that's where it began, it's it's astounding, man. It, it, it moves me so much, much more than than any trophy or, or box office. Um, because there was a moment where I thought I'd never get to that place, where I'd never make another film again, and I would never make anything that would mean uh, so much to me, myself, and also to an audience. So pretty damn cool, man. Like I said, I wasn't going to be as intellectually beautiful as, as your question, but, 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 but I'll give you an answer, bro. On top of all the other ways that Moonlight broke new ground, it was also the first LGBTQ narrative movie to win Best Picture at the Oscars. What impact do you hope that you might have created hitting that milestone? So when there's like a big mainstream blockbuster like Gina Price Brythewood's fantastic The Old Guard that's able to kind of feature these beautifully written gay characters whose sexuality is so naturalistically and tenderly kind of displayed on screen, are you kind of proud to contemplate the possibility that Moonlight's success perhaps contributed to that being just a kind of more normal thing to see in a big studio movie in 2020? I mean, yeah, in a certain way. Um, but but that's that's easier for me to do because I think this is success of Moonlight has has less to do with me than it does with uh, with the audience or, or with the industry, with the people who actually went to see the film. And I have to frame it that way uh, because I have friends and peers who've made things that I think are every bit as worthy uh, as the film we made, but didn't get nearly the same attention. And so I don't think there's, I, I have to demystify the specialness of the film itself and acknowledge the specialness of the moment, because I don't think Moonlight is the first film of its kind that deserved the kind of distinction that it received. Um, but, you know, I have to also be, be real and be honest with myself. Yeah, I've never seen anything like what happened um, with this movie and it's shocking to me that I got to be uh, a part of it and and yeah as I see other things uh, come in the wake of this film and, and other people who, who deserve every bit of their success have a success acknowledged because this film in some small way created a more direct path to access that success yeah it feels incredibly uh, rewarding the good thing is that feeling is in retrospect because had I had any inkling that was going to be the case, the pressure would have been far too great. It was such a very small film. Mm-hmm. Now, I was watching Survivor last night. Um, oh, I wish I hadn't said that because I don't want anybody who's waiting <laughs> on work for me to know that I was watching an episode of Survivor, but I was watching an old episode of Survivor. Uh, old episode of Survivor, and this character got voted off first in season fifteen, and I actually, I actually wrote down what he said because after you get voted off, you go back and you give a quote, and he said. There is no one more proud to play such a small part in a big adventure. And that's how I feel about the life of Moonlight. There's no one more, more proud to have spent, played such a small part in such a big adventure. And I think Moonlight, to be honest, hopefully is going to be just a very small part of what's going to be just this big opening, awakening of both our industry and our art form to many more diverse voices and characters and languages. Mm, that's beautifully put. And we began this conversation talking about Underground Railroad. That's where you, what you've been working on during this trying period. That deals with subject matter that's, uh, yeah, always timely, but especially so now. Can you tell me about uh, the spirit of that show and how you think the series will intersect with this incredible time? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because we began production in August of last year and we, we finished, air quotes, production in March of this year. Um, so when we began this process, especially, you know, the writing of the script and everything, but even the, the physical production, you know, none of these things were, maybe we should have anticipated them, but they, they didn't seem like they were on the horizon. And now that we're editing the show, you know, when when everything first began, it's kind of like dovetailed with, you know, us just going into the edit room. And one of the producers said, man, it's so wild that all this stuff is happening right now. Um, because it would have been very interesting to reference some of these things in the show. And then as we've ended up getting more and more episodes um, cut together, we realize, oh, wow, it must have been in the air because it's all being referenced in the mm-hmm. show. I think in a way that just goes to illustrate how little things have changed. 
um, in American society. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say this: this is this is the heaviest thing I've ever worked on. I mean, I in the making of Moonlight, the making of Bill Street, I didn't shed a single tear in production. We had a therapist on set um, for the run of the show, and I cried many times on this set. And there was even a day where the therapist, Miss Kim pulled me aside and would not let me direct my own show until I had a session with her. And so I had to stop one day and the whole production stopped for about 45 minutes. And I had to have a session um, with this therapist because the, the things I was carrying, uh, it was just too much. And so I don't know, I don't know how that projects for what the show is ultimately going to end up being. Um, I think it's really beautiful and powerful. I'm incredibly proud of it. Um, I think it's going to have a very large part to do with what I do next. Um, but, you know, when all these things began, I turned to Joy McMillan, who was the editor on Moonlight and Bill Street and James. And I just told them how proud I was to be working with them because, you know, anytime these things happen, and they happen so often in America right now, you know, people who look to our work and they see those things reflected, which means we're not reacting, you know, we're just very much in tune. Uh, with the world that we live in and we're reflecting that in the things we create. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's heavy. I think it's very beautiful um, and also very heavy. Well, we can't wait to see it, Barry. This has been so interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for this beautiful film. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you guys. And I apologize to any listeners who think that I'm making them uh, sleepy, but man, this puppy is making me sleepy. Um, So shout out to all the puppy owners of the world, man. I'm with y'all in solidarity. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kemal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, thescriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.